Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for Monday, May 8th. I'm Shelby Herbert reporting for KFSK. The Alaska legislature is finishing its final few weeks of the regular session. Lawmakers are deciding how much money the state of Alaska will give to school districts and how much of the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend should go to individuals and the state for its offer operations. House District 2 Representative Rebecca Hemshoot represents 22 communities in southeast, including Sitka, Petersburg, and smaller communities from Yakutat down to Prince of Wales Island. She recently spoke with Coast Alaska's Angela Denning about the session. She says she's concerned with a recent court ruling by a Washington judge that will close down this summer's king salmon troll fishery in southeast. I gave a special order on it today on the floor because it's just so incredibly disappointing. And, you know, the um, trollers that I'm in touch with regularly, they're incredibly resilient people. And I'm, I have felt really crushed by the, the um, decision yesterday. We're talking about 1,500 people across Southeast Alaska. That's a huge part of our population. The magnitude of this decision or obviously the people involved directly in the industry, but the trickle down of that, we know, you know, it's like, I think a $35 million fishery to the people actively fishing, but the benefit to the community spans out to $85 million. And to have that just, just summarily shut down is absolutely devastating. And, and in, in the special order on the floor today, I basically invited the governor to make good on the promise of supporting the trollers. And we're waiting to see what happens next. But I think it's important to know that um, there are a number of us here watching very closely to make sure that there's some support from the state for the next steps. Now, on education, you're on the Education Committee. Can you talk to me about where school funding is at now and what you support? So where we stand now is neither of the bills for a BSA increase have passed the floor in either body. So what that means is there are increases to education on the table, um, but those increases right now are one-time funding. And a lot of people think, well, it's money. Who cares if it's BSA or if it's one-time? The difference is if it's in the BSA, then it's a commitment from the state that we will continue to fund at this level going forward. We can increase it in the future, but if it's in the BSA, districts can count on it and build their budget next year knowing that they have that money going forward. And possibly an increase and maybe not, but when we fund outside the BSA, it's a lot harder for districts to make commitments on funding that may or may not materialize in future years. So as an example, you might replace a phone system or buy new curriculum. These are needs that districts have, but as far as committing to your educators that they have a job going forward, that's much more tenuous without the commitment of the funding that is there being within the BSA, meaning it will be there this year and next year and in years after that. Another topic that's debated year after year is the amount of the permanent fund dividend figuring out how much individual PFD should be and how much of the permanent fund should help pay for the running of the state. How is that looking right now in Juno? Um, 
That is a hard question and a hard conversation, but um, the Senate has passed. can't remember the bill number, but uh, it's a 75-25 split, and so we finally would have a statute that matches the practice, and then we can make ourselves match our practice to the statute. So that feels like a step forward. That said, I would like us to find ways to have the biggest permanent fund dividend that we can have. And that requires the legislature to make some hard decisions. And it requires Alaskans to come on kind of a bumpy road along with us. Um, do you support other kinds of income like a like a sales tax? I am not a fan of a sales tax. I do feel more comfortable with the, um, I don't know the bill number again, but it's Elise Galvin's bill that is an income tax for high earners. So the threshold I think was 250000 and up would pay a very modest income tax. And then everybody in Alaska would chip in $20 and that could come straight out of your PFD. And to me, that's asking everyone to put in something and some of our most successful to put in a little bit more. So I'm more interested in measures like that. Adding a sales tax feels feels like the wrong solution at a statewide level. That's just going to be really, really hard for rural folks. That was House District 2 Representative Rebecca Hemshoot speaking with Coast Alaska's Angela Denning. That was an abbreviated version of the interview. To hear a more detailed conversation, go to our website, kfsk.org. Earlier this year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration proposed listing the sunflower sea star as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The proposal comes as as disease has wiped out billions of sea stars from California up the western coast to the Aleutians in Alaska. As Kirsten Dobrith reports from Kodiak, the agency is now asking for public comment ahead of its decision. Sea star wasting syndrome is one nasty bug. When it infects a sunflower sea star, one of the largest kinds of sea stars, it causes blister-like lesions and the creature's legs to fall off, killing the animal within 72 hours. What's left behind is essentially a pile of goo where it disintegrated. And then the ocean currents carry that goo away, and 10 days or two weeks you might have absolutely nothing remaining of the animal. Sadie Wright is a protected resource biologist with NOAA. She says the mortality rate is 90% in some areas of the sunflower sea stars range, spanning from Southern California out to Southwestern Alaska. And billions of sea stars have died from the disease in the last decade. NOAA received a petition back in 2021 to protect the animal under the Endangered Species Act. In March, the agency announced it was proposing to list the species as threatened in response. And now it's gathering public comments as part of a review process that will decide whether the sunflower sea star will ultimately be listed as threatened or not. Wright says the agency is hoping to fill in data gaps about the species, particularly in the waters off Alaska's coastline. We have some data. We have really good uh, data, time series data in a couple of places, but it would be great to get a, a broader perspective. 
Wright was in Kodiak earlier this month for a public hearing about the species as part of NOAA's review. About a dozen people attended. Another dozen called into the meeting. Some fishermen said they noticed a dip in the population a few years ago. Recently, though, more healthy-looking animals have been coming up on their gear. Wright says that fits with other reports NOAA has received from the area so far. It does sound like uh, Kodiak is having a, a relatively strong recovery of sunflower sea stars. So that that definitely gives us reason, I think, to be hopeful. Researchers don't know exactly what causes sea star wasting syndrome, but Wright says they don't believe it's related to fishing activities. Take would not be prohibited under the proposed threatened listing. Longliners and fishermen using pot gear most commonly encounter the sea stars. Wright says anyone can submit information or input on the process, and it's all helpful. Photo submissions are even better. We're asking people going forward if they could provide a measurement from the center of the animal's body out to the tip of its longest arm. Members of the public can submit comments to NOAA through May 15th. If the agency issues a threatened listing, the soonest it would go into effect would be March of next year. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. NOAA's next public hearing is in Petersburg on Wednesday from 4 to 7 p.m. in the Borough Assembly Chambers. Members of the public can also call in. The number is 888-790-2053 and the conference code is 231-4303. Ketchikan could soon allow double the number of marijuana stores to set up shop in town. A recent decision by the city council took the community one step closer to more real retailers in an order to support a local grant program. Reagan Miller reports from Ketchikan. Marijuana sales fund Ketchikan's humanitarian grant program. At a recent meeting, the city council took another step toward allowing two more marijuana shops in the city. Some members hope that will increase sales tax revenue to fund the grant program. Council member Riley Gass introduced the motion. He said he wasn't sure how much it would actually help, but thought it was important to explore the option. If one or two more people want to open up shops and invest their time and money in it, I think it's, uh, it's a good idea for us to step out of the way and see what happens. City staff projected that sales tax revenue from marijuana would add up to about $330,000 in fiscal year 2023. But a memo from Ketchikan City Manager said they expect this year's revenue to fall short of the amount needed to fund the program at the same level as last year. Member Jack Finnegan voted no. He said he wasn't against the idea but thought it was missing the root of the problem. I mean, even if we open up the possibility for two new retailers to open, it's not going to happen next week. It's not going to generate that tax revenue right away, even if the market were to expand. With five members voting for it and two against it, an amendment to the code will be brought to the council at the next meeting. Also during Thursday's meeting, the council discussed the city's dock vendor program. Tour businesses can bid on one of six booths to promote and sell their products on Ketchikan's ship docks, but the council has been looking at changes. The council passed a motion to allow a seventh booth on the cruise ship berths. Councilmember Abby Bradbury introduced it. She wants that booth to be reserved for youth groups. I um, would hope, you know, every weekend or week, you know, you could designate it to a youth group or they could sign up for it and um, just allow them to be present and to, to fundraise. The amendment passed unanimously. The council also failed to pass a $10,000 minimum bid on all other vendor booths. Member Gass said that some in the community were concerned that under that minimum $10,000 bid, small operations wouldn't be able to compete with bigger ones. 
and I just worry that this might uh, exacerbate that problem. The council will meet again on May 18th. Wrangell Public Schools and the local borough are seeking a condition survey to prioritize renovations to the community's aging school buildings. The school district operates two campuses, which are located about three blocks apart. The buildings, an elementary, middle, and high school, were built between 1969 and 1985, with expansions and periodic periodic upgrades since then. But even with renovations over the years, the buildings themselves are aging and major maintenance needs at the schools are piling up. The estimated cost to fix it all could be as much as $10 million. But if it all goes according to plan, that wouldn't be paid by the borough and school district. Wrangell Mayor Patty Gilbert says that the borough is trying to qualify for a state education grant program that could more than triple the amount of project money available. We passed a $3.5 million bond. The public voted in favor of that. And the school is trying to maximize uh, the return on that bond money uh, up to $6.5 million for a total of $10 million. And one of the conditions for the uh, grant being awarded to Wrangell Public Schools is this condition survey. A condition survey will tell the school district and borough exactly what's needed for repairs. It's a pricey project. After a competitive bid process, the borough selected Juno-based Northwind Architects to complete the survey of the school buildings. It'll cost $266,000, paid out of a pot of federal money given to former logging communities. The Assembly also approved an additional $30,000 to set aside as contingency funding. Northwind Architects is the same group that recently did a condition assessment on the community's public safety building. It's also in rough shape, but borough voters rejected a bond measure last October that would have funded renovations to the building, which houses the police, volunteer fire department, courthouse, DMV, and jail. Capital Facilities Director Amber Al-Haddad explained at the May 1 special meeting that the borough selected Northwind Architects because of their strong application that focused on experience providing surveys for communities hoping to secure just the kind of grant that Wrangell is aiming for. Both firms that uh, submitted proposals are very well qualified. Northwind spoke uh, much more to their past experience developing condition surveys um, for the Department of Education CIP project. So they seem to have more experience with that and knowledge with this, which is what kind of pushed them over, over as far as the scoring goes and put them as rank number one. If the survey stays on schedule, it would be complete by mid-July. That'll give the borough a few months to review the survey and prepare its application to the state education grant program to try and leverage additional funding to repair the schools. Thank you for joining me for Midday Magazine. My name is Shelby Herbert and I report for KFSK.